The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Yeah, so? What, what do you mean, yeah, so? I was there. So, what's your point? I left the guy there to be killed. I could have done something. Like what? I don't know. I, I, for one thing, I could have let him get in my car. Okay, Matt, let me ask you a question. Did you, did you know this guy? Of course not. Okay, so he was a stranger. What's it matter, okay? He was in trouble. Did you know that at the time? I'm not sure what I knew. Exactly. So some some black guy you never saw before in your life comes running out of the darkness and demands to get into your no, car. No, no, begging. Demanding begging, what's the difference? He wanted to get into your car. Danny, he was bleeding. Well, better him than you. You know that he was a college professor. I mean, he had three books published. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a real tragedy. But the thing you've got to remember is you've got a wife, a house, a job, a car. What's your point? My point is you get too much riding here to risk it all for some stranger. Look, Matt, the way I look at it, you got two choices. You can sit around feeling guilty or you can... Get on with your life. You can do that, just, just like that, right? Jesus. <sighs> okay. Let me ask you a question. If you'd known this, this guy Woodrell was a college professor, would you have helped him out? Okay, what kind of questions, and of course I would. Even though he's black? I'm not a racist. I never said you were. You got nothing to feel guilty about because you, my friend, did nothing wrong. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, December 11th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. To black and white Under the clothes, Everything will be alright And welcome to our show today where you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org with your comments, suggestions, and perhaps, you know, what do you want to hear, want us to hear us talk about on future shows? We're always looking for topics and your input often helps and determines what we do talk about. Today we're going to be talking about why sex sells and why spam sells and why there is legislation about both in the front pages of the news these days. And Robert, I understand uh, you're feeling kind of guilty today, both about being, not about sex or anything like that, but about being white and about being a male. Is that right? Well, no, that's not right. But there are people (laughs) out there who want me to feel guilty and you feel guilty and Allison feel guilty and everybody else feel guilty. No, I saw an image this week of some white people kneeling on the ground with heads bowed in some sort of act of contrition. It was labeled white guilt. And this is from Wikipedia. White guilt is the individual or collective guilt felt by some white people for harm resulting from racist treatment of people of color by whites, both historically and currently. White guilt has been described as one of the psychological costs of racism for white individuals along with empathy, sadness, and anger for victims of racism and fear of non-whites. It can be characterized as a strong emotional feeling of direct responsibility for the unequal circumstances of people of color living in historically and culturally European nations, or the Western world largely due to historical exclusion of non-whites from mainstream white society. That's from Wikipedia. Now, I found a more accurate description of white guilt. 
And this comes from the Urban Dictionary, quote, a belief often subconscious among white liberals that being white is in and of itself a great transgression against the rest of the world for which one must spend their life making atonement. It's often exemplified by embracing the cultures and philosophies of various other ethnic groups while neglecting one's own roots. An example, although Randy comes from a family of middle-class wasps from the suburbs, his white guilt later spurred him to becoming a Rastafarian, unquote. So that's, <laughs> I thought that was an accurate description of this, this liberal monstrosity called white guilt. white guilt. It recognizes that white guilt is a political construction. It does not apply to the vast majority of whites, but only to that subset who use emotion rather than intellect or argument to advance their causes. The liberal, the progressive. It correctly recognizes that white guilt is a dismissal of one's own roots. For roots, we can read cultural philosophy. White guilt, you see, has nothing to do with race and everything to do with philosophy. In particular, the philosophy which has come from Western cultures. It's only incidental and not causal that such cultures were white. White guilt is an attempt by collectivists to smear Western ideals by insinuating that there's something wrong with it, without actually naming it. They list a number of abstractions, such as the decimation of the aboriginals by disease, slavery, income inequality, or the marginalization of the blacks, and without further explanation or analysis, we're supposed to know what they mean. So it comes with this built-in package deal that we all are supposed to know by osmosis somehow. Yeah, right? yeah, it's, it's, it's a label that comes, well, like you say, with a package of, of incidents that we're supposed to be guilty of. And we're supposed to know this by, without naming it, without actually describing it, without analysis. So it's the same non-conceptual technique used by abstract artists to suggest that their creations are good. If you don't, rec- if you don't realize, then you're a plebeian. You look at a Jackson Pollock splashing of paints on this acrylic and, wow, that's fantastic. But somebody comes along and says, no, it's garbage, it's trash. A three-year-old could do better blindfolded. And you're a plebeian. You don't understand. You're beneath the, uh, the understanding of this high art. Yeah, what you don't understand is it's not about the art, it's about the artist. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's about the money. It's always right. about the money. The worth of abstract art must be taken for granted <clears throat> because such work is beyond analysis. So to attempt, to attempt any analysis <clears throat> um, or to analyze the inherent oppression of Western culture reveals your common ignorance. It's just like the abstract art. It shows your tacit agreement with it and therefore your complicity in the marginalization of the Aboriginal or the blacks or the poor or the Muslim. Analysis becomes impossible because the very fact of questioning their verdict on the West puts you in the wrong. You're wrong because you question them. It used to be that the liberal was the one who advanced ideas by intellectual argument. They were incorrect in their argument, but they at least had to be respected for the way they debated. Now, mind you, you have to go back a hundred years to find a liberal of that ilk, Mm. one who actually espoused ideas and uh, used an intellectual argument to get them across. Today, the liberal has abandoned reason as a tool of debate and has reverted to an appeal to emotion, in this case, guilt. And just as the philosophy of the liberal left is collectivist, so too must be the emotions felt by the group. 
whites, meaning the West, must feel guilty collectively for the actions of their ancestors. But what is left out of this is an analysis of exactly what those actions were, or, at the very least, there is an omission of context in any analysis. The West created democracy, or rule by the people, where everyone was equal before and under the law. The West developed freedom and capitalism, allowing for great inventions, which gave the West the ability to explore the world. The culture of the Greeks set the standard in art. Their sculptures still stand today as exemplars of beauty and grace. The Roman culture united three continents under the rule of law. Such was the power of their culture that many of their practices have stood the test of time and are integrated today in our own legal system. The English, French, Spanish, and Portuguese over a thousand years developed cultures of high art and literature. Their exploration of the globe spread their cultures, systems of government, and languages. The entire western hemisphere of the world owes much of its civilization to these people, these white people. But we owe them not because they're white. We owe them because their methods of government governance were fair. Their laws were, to a greater extent um, than any before them, just. And their cultures were advanced. It wasn't to do with their skin color. The fact that they were fair-skinned is not the reason for their greatness. It has nothing to do with it. It's incidental. But the collectivists, those who favor dictatorship over democracy, favor a centrally planned economy over capitalism, favor abstract modern art over fine art or classical art, who favor the depraved and the common over the high and exalted, the collectivists, the liberals, the progressives are the ones who see the achievements of the West and attribute it to color. It's the collectivists who create white guilt, not because they see things as black and white. They see things as being individual or collective. The I versus the we, the loner versus the tribe. The minds of the collectivists seek out a common, unrelated attribute of the people they despise and use it to group them together into a collective which they can then oppose using the same illogic. They then assume that any collective not possessing that trait must be good. They label the West white and bad and anything not of the West colored and good. That is why the collectivists advance their cause of a co- official multiculturalism. In this country, they've essentially barred immigration from the traditional Western countries in favor of immigration from countries whose philosophies and cultures are diametrically opposed to the West. The left have changed the nature of this country and continent to reflect their own philosophy of authoritarianism, collectivism, and socialism, and have overwhelmed the founding Western philosophies of democracy, individualism, and capitalism. The color of this country has changed, but not in the way a racist may view it. The color has not gone from white to black, yellow, or mulatto. The color has gone from white to red, where white stands for the color of someone's, not for the color of someone's skins, but of their ideals. And red stands for the same thing it stood for when the Red Army swept over Russia. It stands for collectivism and blood. Just as there's no such thing as a collective mind, there's no such thing as collective emotion. White individuals have nothing to feel guilty about. If anything, if, if anyone has anything to feel guilty about and ashamed about, it's the collectivists who have abandoned all reason in favor of emotional cliches in order to subdue the minds of peaceful individuals of all colors. Now can we go to Sharon without any more discussion? At the moment, 
I seem to have no choice. So this is justice, Dr. Arianus. You have signed my death warrant. I warned you what to expect. Will you continue to let this mockery of justice go on? If you are partisans of justice, prove it. Kill him. We are not killers. What do you do, carry justice on your tongues? You will beg for it, but you won't fight or die for it. After so many years of leading the fight, you seem very much alive. I doubt that the same can be said for many of his followers. You're finished, Lokai. Oh, we've got your kind penned in on Sharon into little districts, and it's not going to change. You've combed the galaxy and come up with nothing but monocolored trash, do-gooders, and bleeding hearts. You're dead, you half-white. Useless pieces of bland flesh. I'll take you with me, you half-white. <laughs> Mr. Bunker, I don't believe you've ever met George. Oh, no. Uh, come on in. I see you're interested in our space program. Oh, yeah, that's a genuine facsimile there with the Apollo 14 insignia. That's the thing that separates the U.S. of vape and the red chinks and all the mother losers. <laughs> you don't think we got anything more important to do with $20 billion than to send a guy up on the moon to hit a few golf balls? <laughs> What's more important than that? How about spending the money here on Earth to fight poverty, create a few jobs? Oh, you sound just like my son-in-law now. Your son-in-law is black? No! <laughs> ah, he's only a polar. <laughs> you know, he's... Filled with a lot of them radical liberal ideas, you know, which uh, I'm sorry to say, so is a lot of your black people. I was arguing over the Bible here this morning, and uh, my son-in-law is an atheist. You ain't one of them, are you? No, I believe in God. Uh, well, now, that's nice. <laughs> it's interesting, too, the way you people wake yourself up from uh, the snakes and the beads and the wooden idols right up to our God. <laughs> God. Well, I mean, uh, you know, God is white, ain't he? What makes you think God isn't black? Well, because I was made in God's image, and you'll note that I ain't black. Well, don't complain to me about it. I ain't complaining about nothing. I just mean all the pictures you ever see of God. He's white, like the take that Dago artist to painted God on a ceiling over Rome. Remember that? You mean that white Dago artist that painted him? Yeah, but every picture I ever seen of God, he's white. Well, maybe you were looking at the negative. Let's try to talk intelligent. <laughs> now, if God was black, as you say, then his son would also have to be black. You ain't gonna tell me that Jesus is black. Well, now you're catching on. <laughs> they already proved that Jesus was an Ethiopian. Wait a minute, now, you say he's an Ethiopian, a Presbyterian says he's a Presbyterian. <laughs> but whatever he was, he was never black. Well, if God wasn't black, how come he built us so much better than you? <laughs> Are you kidding? Well, look at the way it is, man. Take us out of football, take us out of basketball, take us out of the Olympics, and what do you got? 
I can't even think about it. It's pathetic. <laughs> well, let me ask you something. How come all the astronauts are white? Because they're picked by lily-white Americans like you who only pick other lily-white Americans. So what? So nothing. Keep your white astronauts. Like I already proved to you, we got God, who is black. Well, the only answer to that is... <laughs> Oh boy, that was risque stuff for, for that time of, of our history in North America. You know, both that Star Trek clip and that Archie Bunker clip were basically broadcast in the late 60s, early 70s-ish, you know. And that was at the height of a lot of the racial riots in Detroit and all around the U.S., which was very much like the atmosphere that seems to be building again today in the U.S. And yet we don't see um, cutting-edge racially focused comedy and and drama as uh, it, not not in that sense not in that uh, social commentary sense as much as uh, f- funnily enough in a more integrated sense is what we see it today and I you know when I see a black person on TV today I don't think twice about it it's just another person you yeah. know and I think part of that is probably because of the positive effect of shows like Star Trek and All in the Family oh, who absolutely. pushed that envelope but mm-hmm. today I get the impression that at, that envelope is starting to recede that's what concerns me you know I thought what a brilliant idea of Gene Roddenberry and the gang because in that episode each of the characters were, were literally colored half white half black but yeah. on different sides of their body and that was, <laughs> and that was the, the prejudice that, that was the prejudice that's what it was based <laughs> on and what a way to get around it I tell you I tell you okay so from white guilt, we're going to go on now to male guilt, continuing our discussion of authoritarian collectivists. I read a Canadian press article reprinted in the Huffington Post entitled, Comply or Explain, Ontario Rule Changes Meant to Put More Women in Boardroom. And it read, Unbelievable, quote, after all that 60s stuff, didn't, weren't they listening? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. It read, quote, Ontario is changing securities rules in hopes of getting more women appointed to corporate boards and promoted to senior management teams. Starting January 1st, companies must disclose the number of women on the board and in executive officer positions, policies regarding the representation of women at the director level and director term limits. Finance Minister Charles Souza says the changes will result in the promotion of more women through a comply or explain model rather than using specific quotas. Souza says having more women on companies' boards and in senior management will, now get this, Bob, make corporations more productive, help attract new investment, and grow the economy, unquote. Comply or explain has an air of dictatorial haughtiness about it. And even though Premier Wynne and Minister Souza certainly fit the bill of being dictatorial and self-righteous, they did not come up with that term. Looking into it a bit, I found that um, in the financial industry, they use that term, and um, with any, uh, they they use that term for that industry, which, if they're offering public shares, it applies to them. But this, not uh, any others. Um, no, well, that's that industry basically is where it came from. I looked mm. that up in the Financial okay. Times, and it said this sounds voluntary, but. In an industry as regulated as the financial sector, any deviation from standard or expected codes undoubtedly results in government interference and possible criminal and civil repercussions. 
At the very least, a corporation can expect to uh, be prevented from offering public shares on any regulated exchange if they don't comply or explain. The Financial Times uh, explains the rationale behind comply or explains as follows, quote, The comply-or-explain approach recognizes that good governance cannot be constrained by ever-increasing statutory regulations, which tend towards a one-size-fits-all solution. Sometimes an alternative to following a provision of the code may be justified in particular circumstances. A condition of doing so is that the reasons for it should be explained to shareholders who may wish to discuss the position with the company, and whose voting intentions may be influential as a result, unquote. So the attempt by the industry to prevent further government regulation by anticipating what the lawmakers want and proactively meeting these expectations. We see this in Canada, in voluntary so-called self-policing organizations, such as in the newspaper or construction industries. Such associations attempt to gauge the whimsical mood of the government and forestall regulation and legislation by demonstrating that they are complying with societal norms and expectations. Now, in my opinion, this attitude of anticipating what Big Brother is going to do to try and avoid his wrath is far worse than forcing the government to enact in law exactly what it expects and to challenge such laws if they need challenging in court. It's far better to, to conduct business with a defined set of rules than to guess how not to offend a capricious overseer. They're leaving the person in a position of having to respond to a negative, to prove a negative. Or right? a non-existent. Or something that's non-existent. Yeah. That's a negative, I guess. That's what I meant by oh, something yes. Yes, <laughs> that, that doesn't exist. And you can't do that. There's no way you can prove existence. You can't prove God. You can't prove anything that's axiomatic <laughs> or that's a given. Uh, I don't know on what grounds they would possibly approach it. It's all, it's all going to be statistics. You know, how that's how the government thinks. Yes. Because it doesn't think. <laughs> you know, consider the mental psychosis board members of Ontario corporations must endure to try and meet ill-defined expectations by Parliament. It may not be against the law not to have women on your boards of directors, but if you don't have a good explanation as to why not then the government may or may not take action. Exactly what action? Not defined. Exactly how many women you must have on your board? It's not defined. Just like antitrust laws. Exactly. Yes. Same thing. Yeah. Boards are going to be living in fear you know, for transgressing an unwritten law. I remember once saying that the reason Soviets loved the game of chess was because of its rigid rules in a country where the rules were whimsical and could change at any moment. Chess was a focal point of sanity for an individual in an insane world. So too, laws which might stand the test of time and legal um, tests and challenges and constitutional challenges are far more sane, a sane environment in which to conduct business, than trying to anticipate the fickle moods of legislatures like Kathleen Wynne. Comply or explain is primarily a code of conduct practiced in the UK, Australia and Canada and recently it's being adopted in Europe. The United States system does not use this so-called principle-based approach. Instead, it uses a rules-based approach requiring companies to comply under law. This is saner and more than, uh, and more just, a saner and more just approach of the two, I think. So to comply 
or else. I would say it's rather fairer, not fair. Explain. I would say it's fairer, if not necessarily just. The law mm-hmm. might be unjust, but at oh, least yes. it's a more fair way. Oh yes, don't take don't take me wrong here. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of unjust yeah. rules and regulations. No, I, I know. I just wanted to clarify that yeah. you don't mean it's just because yeah. because they put in an unjust law and told you about it. <laughs> no, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, most of those laws can just be thrown away. Now, as for the idea that the government should dictate any standard of gender makeup for private, although publicly traded, companies, it's a despicable and repugnant abuse of their power. As the supposed rationale for the directive, uh, Minister Souza says, quote, having more women on companies' boards and in senior management will make more, corp- make more corporations more productive, help attract new investment, and grow the economy, unquote. Now, exactly how having more women on boards will make a company more productive is left unsaid. Exactly how it will attract new investment is left to the imagination. Exactly how it will grow the economy is anybody's guess. Remember to question or to analyze to reveal yourself as a plebeian. It should be taken for granted that they have a uterus. That granted that having a uterus and other female body parts is better for business and better for the economy, however ludicrous this may sound, just as having a penis and a Y chromosome is somehow better than having labia and two X chromosomes. There are differences between men and women, none of which have anything to do with business savvy or a corporation's productivity. Like white guilt, the collectivists are relying on some emotional appeal to male guilt. Just as white guilt focuses on the irrelevant physical attributes of skin color to suggest that any culture is better than Western culture, so too the irrelevant sexual attributes of men and women are crucial in running a business. Racism and sexism are being kept alive by authoritarian collectivists like premier women or entourage. The real racists and the ones who suggest that whites should be guilty for simply being white and the real sexists are the ones that men should be guilty for simply being men. The financial industry should reverse the onus on Kathleen Wynne and force her to explain exactly why a private board of directors must hire more women. They should force her to explain exactly how such a step will improve productivity, attract new investment, and grow the economy. If she can properly explain such things, I'm sure that every board of directors in the province will more than willingly move to elect more women onto the boards. I mean, why wouldn't they? The thing is, she can't, because there is no explanation for such a ludicrous, sexist policy. How interesting, because the theme you brought up here, you know, having women on boards and stuff, as strange as it seems, that fits into the theme I'll be talking about when we come back after the break which will be about Canada's uh, new prostitution bill, the role of sex in selling, and a little bit about spam, too. <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Right. All right, come on, inside here, Turner. Man, what are you asking me for? I'm just trying to keep off welfare. Very commendable. This is our loan shark? Yeah, it's one of them, Barney. Leland Turner, age 14. 14. I'm Captain Miller, Turner. Hey, man. Everybody's going to be honkies from now on? Probably. <laughs> oh, uh, Barney, I uh, spoke to a couple of the dock workers, and uh, Master Turner's name came up in a number of the conversations. I found him down near Pier 70, waving this pipe at a wino. Well, look, he missed two payments. What would you do? Get a preliminary statement, see if we can find his family. Okay, Junior, come on, have a seat over there. Oh, man, what about my phone call? You don't get one. What about my lawyer? You don't get one. <laughs> I'm afraid as a juvenile, you have very few rights, Mr. Turner. 
I guess you can't blame you cops for being the way you are when you gotta live like this. <laughs> Full name? Muhammad X. Happened to Turner. That's a slave name. You can have it. Mine's Muhammad X. How do you spell that? X. <laughs> What are you staring at, honky? Honky? That has an interesting etymology. It was coined by blacks in the 1950s in reference to the nasal tone of Caucasians. Hey, man, don't mess with me, all right? <laughs> Put it up? No, that's okay. You have such lovely hair. I'm sure the doctor would agree. Who, Simon? No, he's much too... I mean, I'm just... Do you think it looks better up? <laughs> We can experiment. We might even get wild later and wash your face. <laughs> you ever do this for your clients? Very occasionally. Not all of them have enough hair to get a brush through. Have you ever had to service a really hideous client with boils and the like? A companion chooses her own clients. Mm -hmm. That's guild law. But physical appearance doesn't matter so terribly. You look for compatibility of spirit. There's an energy about a person that's difficult to hide. You try to feel that. And then you try to feel the energy of their credit account. It has a sort of aura. What did I say to you about barging into my shuttle? That it was manly and impulsive? Yes, precisely. Only the exact phrase I used was don't. Well, you're holding my mechanic in thrall, and Kaylee, what the hell's going on in the engine room? Were there monkeys? Some terrifying space monkeys maybe got loose? I had to rewire the grav thrust because somebody won't replace that crappy compression coil. Well, get the place squared away. It's dangerous in there, and I ain't paying you to get your hair played out. We work before we play. You're servicing crew now? In your lonely, pathetic dreams. What do you want? We have a job. Congratulations. This job wouldn't be on a decently civilized planet where I could screen some respectable clients, perhaps. Respectable clients? That seems a contradiction. Don't start. Well, I guess they started. Uh, there are no respectable clients in the prostitution business. And that's the gist of Canada's new anti-prostitution law which is what it is, but is not called, because <laughs> it is an anti-prostitution law, despite its name. December 6th will be especially sad for sex workers this year, says Emily Simmons, the chair of Prostitutes of Ottawa Gatineau Work, Educate, and Resist, or POWER for short, in the pages of the London Free Press this past Monday, under the heading, Sex Workers Decry New Prostitution Legislation, on December 8th in the Free Press. The deeply flawed and misleadingly named Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act not only reintroduces laws deemed unconstitutional in a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court only one year ago, it actually makes them worse, Simmons said. 
And so did I, Robert, when we last discussed this issue on the show way back on July 17th. It was Just Right number 359, if anyone wants to check it out on uh, justrightmedia.org. And on that broadcast, I said the following, and this is a quote, right from the start and perhaps by some hidden intention, um, that this law has a glaringly false and unworkable goal of ending the demand for the services of the so-called oldest profession on planet Earth. And, you know, the topic headline we used for that segment of our show was called Bill C-36, Demanding No Demand. And so far, that's exactly how the scenario was played out. And Bill C-36 is now law. It took effect a couple of weeks ago. In all the public commentary and talk I've heard and read on the subject, the overwhelming consensus seems to be that the law will eventually be struck down. Among the issues argued in the framing of the legislation was the issue of whether or not women in the sex trade were there consensually or were there because they were coerced. Interesting, I was listening to Andrew Lawton on on his show a couple of days ago on Tuesday, I think it was, and he asked an interesting question. He says, doesn't the actual exchange of money for sex automatically imply consent, he says? And I'm going, isn't that interesting? It really does. In fact, he was quite right to point out that more than consent, it it, it forms the basis of what otherwise would be considered a contract, right, uh, under any other legal or moral circumstances. But the real twist in this story occurred when, amazingly, Ontario's own Kathleen Wynne was among the first to notice the problem with the new law. Uh, sex trade workers and their safety focus of debate read the December 9th, 14 headline in the Free Press by Jessica Hume and Antonella Artuso. Quote, when as asked Ontario's Attorney General Madeline Mayer to investigate Bill C-36 concerned, the law will not make sex workers safer. The law criminalizes purchase rather than the sale of sex. Federal Justice Minister Peter McKay shrugged off criticism, saying prostitution is driven by those who buy other people for sex. Ridiculous, not buying people. That's like saying when you go in a store, you're buying the people who sell you the, the products in the store. <laughs> Anyways, he says, that's why C-36 targets the Johns who fuel the demand for pimps who profit. So here he's saying, okay, the pimps and the prostitutes are okay. It's just the Johns that are the problem. <laughs> Jeez. Women and sex workers groups have demanded Ottawa repeal the law and praised Wynne's actions, citing concerns the law limits sex workers' ability to screen for dangerous clients. And, you know, those few sentences pretty much boil the legislation right down to its basic essentials. And we've discussed each and every point raised in that article in great detail on past broadcasts of this show. And I'm still very fascinated with the unbelievable imbalance and unfairness in the government's approach and its attempt to actually get away with it. Back in July, I cited a National Post article headed, McKay's Bill Sure to be Struck Down, and that appeared to be the theme of most of the media views of the legislation, and it also appears to be a theme common to another recently enacted piece of legislation that I'll be discussing a bit later, and that's that's Canada's anti-spam legislation. So on Bill C-36, now law, I have to repeat exactly what I said back in July before it was a law. Uh, You know, the issue is metaphysically, epistemologically, and logically a huge contradiction of so gross a proportion that it astounds me that presumably rational human beings can even continue to entertain such a discussion, let alone legislation on so ludicrous a proposition. You know, I said, are you serious? Selling something is okay, but buying it is not? That's just too much for me to take. I can't put those two ideas in the same bottle. No way. That's what I said then, and it's all I can really say again today. 
at least about the specific legislation itself. But I also said something else far more fundamental to the issue than the obvious contradictions in the new law. And that was this. To simply assert that any and all acts of sex for money are non-consensual and thus constitute rape is to assert that no such consensual transaction is even possible, which is sheer nonsense on the face of it. It also asserts that women are not equal to men, since they are not capable of consent under any of these circumstances. It denies them their freedom of choice and ownership of their own bodies. That's what I said then. And I think this kind of thinking made law, far more than prostitution itself, objectifies sex workers, in particular women, in a way that's much more harmful than any assumed implications of that. And this brings me to a related, though much lighter, subject on the same theme. You know, on the one hand, there's the issue of selling sex, but in this case, the issue is one of using sex to sell commercial products. And I was really surprised by the particular person who wrote about his objection to using sex to sell cars at auto trade shows. And that was David Booth, who writes the Motormouth column of the National Post. Don't know if you're familiar with that at all. No. But he usually has really good articles on, uh, you know, emissions tests and things like that, and talks very common sense about cars. But this one surprised me. And he said, despite changing times, auto shows continue to trot out scantily clad women to promote new cars. And I was just thinking in the context of what you were just saying, Robert, how the provincial government wants to have more women on boards. And they say that'll attract more business. Is that, is that what they're thinking here? Maybe it's just the skirt we're talking about. <laughs> I don't know. But his headline... You know, to tell you the truth, if I have any male guilt at all, it's because I don't really fawn or drool over cars. I really don't well, have any time for them. <laughs> you should, Dave, David Booth wouldn't like you then. No. Get uh, me from point A to B and that's it. Thank you. You know, he says, despite changing times, auto shows continue to trot out scantily clad women to promote new cars. That was a headline, November 28th. And in that, he basically said that the last bastion of openly discriminatory sexism in the corporate world is in the auto shows that he's attended over the past 28 years. He says, how the automakers, not to mention the show organizers and everyone else responsible for the modern motor show, get away with overt sexism that was the recent Los Angeles auto show is quite beyond my comprehension, he writes. And then he starts aiming his criticisms at the corporate public relations executives and car companies. And he says, uh, obviously no one has brought this to your attention, but the draping of young women over sheet metal is just so passe. The automotive industry, like virtually all others, has changed. I realize the most ardent of feminists would say, too little, too late, but let's at least acknowledge uh, that, uh, oh, so the, the future largest automaker in the world, occasionally, the, the, head of the, <laughs> the head of it, Mary Barra, occasionally wears skirts to the office, okay? An increasing number of engineers who design our cars, from super to econo, likewise, sometimes carry purses to work. And as the marketing departments of your very own firms are constantly pointing out women make more than half of the buying decisions of new automobiles. Uh, most major media covering the LA affair at the gigantic convention center would claim a sizable portion of women among their reporting and editing teams. And he says, are you really willing to risk alienating the fastest growing segment of the auto journalist workforce and the huge portion of the consuming public they represent? So basically, he concludes by saying, this is the 21st century. If you're unwilling to dispense with the sexualization of your product, at least make it more equitable. What's good for the gander, after all, is also good for the goose. And that concluding argument, that last sentence, he actually had another couple paragraphs on that theme that I didn't bother reading. But to me, 
that negated everything he had said before, and I'll explain why. First, he put a disclaimer on this article. He put it over the top of the article, and I thought that was a little odd. And it reads as thus. For those of you who might think this week's motor mouth is yet another case of politically correct piling on, let me set the record straight. I have never understood the sexualization of things internally combusted. (laughs) 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 Even when I was a testosterone-infused youth. Indeed, I think I worried my dear old mother to no end when one day when I was 15 or thereabouts, I lamented Norton motorcycles, very popular at the time, use of scantily clad demoiselles, in their advertisements. Now, I'm not against the artfully displayed mammary protrubance per se, (laughs) but I did complain to mom that the models, admittedly long and lithe legs, were obstructing my view of the commando's uh, isoclastic machine. I didn't like it then, and I like it even less now, he writes. Well, that disclaimer explains a lot of his perspective on this issue. It appears to me that the reason he differs so much with others on this particular issue, including with industry practice, it's because he does not attend shows as a consumer. He's not a consumer. He's not there to have his Uh. attention attracted to something, right? He's going as an auto critic or a hobbyist or a mechanic even. So he's actually a bit of a nerd about things internally combusted, as he said. And the rejection of sexuality as a distraction or interference with his main interest is not uncommon among nerds, as we know so well, don't we? I mean, the Big Bang Theory's character Sheldon is a classic comedic example, uh, or almost any of the Sherlock Holmes character interpretations of late would also fit that same prescription about sex and sexuality. They all reject it at some, some way or consider it a great inconvenience. It gets mm-hmm. in the way of what they want to do. And I think that's where he's coming from. But based on the conclusion of his essay, he's expressed an inherent contradiction in his argument. One that, to me at least, reveals that his true motivation is to be politically correct, counter to what he said. And see if you follow this logic with me, Robert. If he's really objecting to female models at the auto shows because they get in the way of his things internally combusted fetish, then wouldn't that objection hold just as true for male models? How come if they're there, they don't bother him and they don't get in the way? (laughs) <laughs> you see, uh, as soon as I start Hypocrite. asking, that's right. Male models get in the way just as much as the female ones. Yet Booth implies that he would be willing to tolerate these obstructions so long as both sexes were equally represented. He's that, admitting that he's being distracted by a nice pair of legs. That could be too. <laughs> <laughs> and but anyways, I think this that attitude, that statement, effectively negates and cancels out everything else he wrote about his objections to female models at the car shows. And the idea that equality of numbers of each sex represented in any particular activity concerned with sex is a fetish all its own. It's irrational. The only relevant equality between men and women is before and under the law and the fact that they're each individuals and have their right to choose just as everyone should. There's nothing about having the right to free choice that says you have to choose something in equal numbers and in equal proportions as everyone else does. That does not equate to equal freedom of rights. They're they're two different things. So why do we need sex to sell cars? Well, David Booth never actually entertained answering that question on the broader issue it represents, even though it was the big question on the top of his article. Why do we use sex to sell anything? Now, true, we don't need to, 
But in appealing to consumers and to a public with a very short attention span, an ad that uses sex versus an ad that does not use sex will attract more attention. That's why advertisers like to use attractive models. It works. Yes, exactly. Mostly women because they know it works. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. And I find it very interesting that the word sex itself in this context is being used to mean women. (laughs) Right? Women are sex. Period. Done. Okay. Even more interestingly, these female models are not being sexual as such. The pictures that he had at, from the car show were just women dressed in business almost gear, but dresses, you know, mm-hmm. dress and heels kind of thing, but nothing overtly sexual that you might not see at the office. Not a sunshine uh, girl. No, uh, although I, I imagine there were shows where they might be dressed in anything from a bikini to, you know, even a formal dress. Sure. Sometimes you'll see them in gowns. So that's using sex. Well, you're attracting. It's, it's using an attraction. And more marketing studies than you can count will reveal that women themselves are among the demographic group that women models would most likely attract. I know that sounds oxymoronic to a man, <laughs> but think about it. Men's magazines are full of pictures of women's. Women's magazines, they're full of pictures of women, too. (laughs) If you want to confirm this theory, just check out the magazine covers at the grocery checkout. When that changes, then we'll either see more male models at the car show or none at all. When we return on the other side, we'll discover that not only does sex sell, but apparently spam sells, too. Well, you know, what I want to know is, what would Wheel of Fortune be like without Vanna White to turn over those letters? It would change the whole tone of everything. You can turn over those letters by a push of a button. Yeah. Everybody wants to tune into Vanna White. Of course. <laughs> I mean, th- this, this, there's almost this anti-sex attitude, and I'm not talking about anti-women. I'm talking about anti-sexuality. And uh, some shows are making fun of it now, like the Big Bang Theory. They, they re- have a lot of fun with that, especially through Sheldon. But uh, anyway, let's carry on. Then I got in trouble at work uh, for asking out this girl, and she was like, our relationship needs to be strictly professional. So I offered her $400 to have sex with me. It's time to get a little uh, real, uh, if that's okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> this next piece that we have written is an ironic calculator watch. Um, <laughs> I wasn't kidding about before. We're nerds. But uh, this piece is pretty real. Um, it's a street poem, if you will, composed entirely of subject lines from recent unwanted email solicitations. <laughs> Sorry, it's called Deaf Poetry Spam. Here we go. Attention homeowners, need cash, 20305. Stick your tongue in my ass, you're pre-approved. Teen lesbians, amateurs, and more. Schoolgirls gone crazy, hardcore. Mortgage rates have never been lower. Attention homeowners. Hey, bro, just found out my stepsister is a dot, dot, dot. Did someone say teen skank sandwich? Forward. Debt consolidation. Forward. Your free consultation. Forward. Tiny Tina's Titanic titties. Finally, a serious home-based business. 
Stop smoking now. Stop hair loss now. Stop watches me and the wife double team the family Doberman. <laughs> Attention, homeowners, delivery failure, mailer demon. Bigger penzis, lots more semen. Size does matter, make it fatter. Take our survey, save today. Search, chat, date, flirt, PayPal security alert. Please verify your account info. Hello. Online pharmacy. Hi, it's me. Rolex is free. Hi, it's me. Something Japanese. Why have you forgotten me? Med, diplomas, mail, sperm. Sign up now for heart and firm. Delete. This is really awkward. Usually on Deaf Poetry Jam, they leave after they're done. They just dying. walk off. Yeah. <laughs> Here we still are. Yeah. I, I think white people are much more prone to being sheepish, yeah. uh, too, so this is very awkward. Impression needs work. Yeah, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, I gotta say, you know, that last bit kind of bums me out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be open about that. Really? Yeah. Why? And you know why? No. Because if you think about it for real, those spammers are allowed to fill your inbox all day and night. You know, that drives me crazy. Here yep. we are, we're just two dudes trying to get an email out now and then, right? Mm -hmm. But if your spam filter is worth a nickel, you will never get an email from hard and firm. That is definitely true. Even if you're on our email list, your spam filter will block hard and firm. It's true, and that bums me out. I mean, that's not yeah. fair, you know? They should get punished. That should be illegal. And while I'm fake mad... Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, that was funny. Uh, you know, that was some great death poetry spam by Hard and Firm, who are, of course, the comedy team of Chris Hardwick and Mike, Mike Furman. And that's spelled P-H-I-R-M, for those who are wondering. Uh, you know, what's interesting about the spam subject lines they cited in their poetry, for me, was this. For the most part, the kind of spam is the kind of spam that Canada's anti-spam legislation does not even attempt to address. <laughs> you know, pardon, pardon the pun, address, you know. Uh, Canada's anti-spam legislation targets commercial email solicitations and communications made without prior consent. So it has to be about money, and you have to be talking about money in the, in the communication. If you're just talking about sex or something else or just high, you know, and, and making one of those contacts, I don't know what they can do about that. Um, for my own part, over the past year or so, I've noticed that it's getting harder, not firmer, <laughs> to send legitimate business email without some kind of automated online filter incorrectly identifying it as spam. And one of the things that I have found lately, I don't know if anyone else has run into this, is if you forward something. You heard in the, they had a lot of forwards in their, in their little spam thing yes. there. And lately I found that a lot of forwards will not get through. You have to literally recopy the message that you have in your message and, and repaste it into a new a email if you want to get it through to somebody. It won't go as a forward. So a lot of, a lot of filters are, are filtering that out. If you're wondering why your friends aren't getting some of your messages. Email law could face challenge, writes Drew Hasselback in the legal post section of the National Post on December 3rd. And he says, we'll remember 2014 as the year we received all those unsolicited emails asking us if we would consent to receive more unsolicited <laughs> email. It was laughable. Spam asking for permission to send you spam. But next year, things might get more serious. By that, he means 2015. At least one law professor thinks that 2015 could be the year Canada's anti-spam legislation, Castle, faces a constitutional challenge. Now, we, discuss, we discussed this law in great detail on a past show. 
Uh, Amor Corwin, a law professor at the University of Win Windsor, and Stephanie Provato, a law student, also who expects to receive her degree in 2015, have jointly authored, co-authored an academic paper for the John Marshall Journal of Information Technology and Privacy Law that argues Canada's federal anti-spam legislation creates unconstitutional limits on free speech. It's a tough act to defend from a charter challenge. And he's not aware of anyone filing it, but he says the maximum administrative monetary penalties, um, AMP, you know, imposed by law, $1 million for an individual and $10 million for corporations, are high enough to inspire anyone charged under the Act to raise the constitutional issue as a defense. Now, apparently, these two authors of this, uh, of this study in Windsor have uh, introduced something what is called the Oaks Test, a four-question analysis that determines whether the charter breach can be demonstrably ju justified in a free and democratic society. And they looked at the anti Canada's anti-spam legislation and they, they thought that the law passes uh, the first two questions, whether it's necessary and connected to its objective. I'll talk about that later. Uh, does, you know, first, does it address a pressing and substantial purpose? Yes, they write. Industry Canada says in 2012, some 80% of global email traffic was spam. Unsolicited email is getting in the way of internet commerce. The situation demands a legislative response, they argue. Personally, I disagree even with that argument. The situation demands a technological response, if any. Second, is there a rational connection between the law and its objective? Yes, they argue, the problem is spam or commercial emails, and that's what the law targets. Personally here, I have to agree, this was the key to my last commentary on this issue. The target is commercial email traffic being called spam, while actual spam is left completely unaddressed. However, the authors think that the law fails on the third question. Does the law limit freedom of issue as little as reasonably possible? No, they conclude, the restraints imposed by the law are too broad and vague. To, due to the negative effects stemming from a law that is overreaching, uh, many individuals and businesses may find themselves barred and restricted from communicating electronically with others, they write in their paper. Many legitimate marketing and communication practices would be rendered illegal. For those uninitiated to the mysteries of charter litigation, if a law flunks any of the four questions, it isn't saved. So in other words, we have four laws, you know, four questions. Is the proposed law necessary? Is it rationally connected to its objective? Does the law limit freedom? Does a penalty imposed by the law offer a proportionate response? I say that Canada's anti-spam legislation fails all four tests, as does Bill C-36 anti-prostitution. You know, um, Another issue with the, with the issue is that people think that companies will be afraid to fight the spam because they think the public thinks this is a popular thing. I don't think the public thinks it's all that popular at all. And, you know, again, I wanted to point out some similarities between this. You know, as I noted, the anti-spam legislation is based on the prostitution principle. It's okay to have sex as long as money's not involved. In this case, it's okay to spam all you want as long as there's no com com commercial communication involved, right? Yeah. And and another thing that the two have in common is their outrageous presumptuousness. It's almost as each law was purposely set up to be challenged and eventually thrown out. Is that a strategy or a tactic? I don't know. I suppose we'll see as we watch events unfold over the year or two. But like it or not, for the people who actually use, use them and effectively, both sex and spam are effective selling tools, and that's why we get them in our mail. And that's it for me today, Robert.
So I guess we've got to go for another week. Join us again next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Explain the couch. Uh, oh, well, there were some people on the first floor moving out and they sold it to me for $100. Howard and Raj helped me bring it up. But what's wrong with the furniture we have? They're lawn chairs. <laughs> and there was no place for company. Did it occur to you that was by design? <laughs> According to the roommate agreement, I'm entitled to allocate 50% of the cubic footage of the common areas. But you didn't notify me by email, so this is still a breach. <laughs> I did notify you. D oh, you did, did you? <laughs> Rat. <laughs> Hoisted by my own spam filter. Well, what am I doing in your spam folder? I put you there after you forwarded me a picture of a cat playing the piano entitled This is Funny. <laughs> well, yeah, I saw that. That was hilarious.